Welcome to Warning Signs. God bless you. I, I want to just, look, I, I like to give roses while people are still living. Uh, that took that one promo for Christmas at the movies. I just got told by a little birdie in the back. That took Kristen somewhere around 30 hours to put together. Doesn't she do a great job? She loves it when we brag on her. She loves everybody looking at her and talking to her and stuff, so she, yeah, that's right. But she, she does a fast, <laughs> she disappeared. Uh, she's short, but she's not that short. Uh, she, she does a great job, and we appreciate her to the, uh, to the end of the world and back. Between her and the creative team, they make me look a whole lot better than I actually am up here. So, um, But I, I, I do want to say this morning is part 11 of Warning Signs. I have finished... Uh, at least rudimentarily on, on the uh, surface level, I have finished this entire sermon series. It's going to conclude with Super Sunday Night, which is going to lead us right up into Christmas at the movies. I didn't intend for it to last this long, but the life of David, it worked out. The, the Holy Spirit gets involved in something, and he orchestrates something perfectly. And I did not know it was going to end up this way. I didn't plan for it to be this way, but we've been looking at the life of David through this series. And if you're new here, uh, this has been a fall sermon series called Warning Signs. And each week we've been taking a part of David's life and we've been looking at his life and we're using it as warning signs of how we should be examining our own lives. I'm going to tell you this morning that beginning last week and through the end of this, now that I've got this whole series mapped out, uh, through the end of this series, there's going to be very pointed, direct, and structured Ways that I present the gospel to bring an expected end at the altar. Last week was about salvation. If you weren't here, uh, it was about uh, surrendering uh, because we left David on the rooftop. Uh, he, he had went onto the rooftop and he had uh, gotten himself into a bit of a sticky icky. And we ended up talking about salvation. This morning, we're going to go one step beyond salvation because I assume on a Sunday morning, in a crowd this large uh, in God's house that most of you at least consider yourself a child of God. Most of you consider yourself saved. What most people don't understand, and we're going to talk about at length this morning, when I say at length, we're going to be here a while. <laughs> um, what I'm going to talk about at length this morning is, even if you're saved, there's some stuff that you need delivered from. And we're going to get into the altar this morning with the purpose of deliverance. And, and that's, that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. So before I ever get started, because I, I, I know where I'm going with this, it's not always this way. The Holy Spirit doesn't always give me exactly where, where I'm supposed to end up and, and show me exactly what the altar should be about because sometimes it ebbs and flows with the message. But this morning, I've known for three weeks where I was supposed to land this plane and what we're supposed to be doing in the altar. And I know that because some of you are in here and maybe some of you hold positions in the church, maybe some of you uh, feel like other people look at you in a certain light and you, you're not going to want to come up here at the end of this. You don't want your family to see you come up here because you don't want them asking you, questioning you. 
You, 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 don't, you don't want to have to go through that, like, why did you come up? But that devil has hindered you long enough, and it's time that you get free from whatever it is that's been holding you back. And the enemy is going to use lies and deception throughout this message to tell you either that's not you, or it's not that important, or it's not that big of a deal, or you really don't want to go up there and have all them people looking at you. I mean, they've got cameras pointed at you. People from all over the world watch these videos. You don't want somebody to see you in that altar. I want you to look at your neighbor and maybe two or three of the neighbors. And I want you to tell them, and I want you to be sincere. This, um, this, this is a matter of eternity and freedom. I want you to find three or four people before we ever get started this morning. I want you to look them dead in the eye and tell them, it's okay to not be okay. Will you do that? Look, there's not a person in this room that thinks you're perfect. There's not a person in this room that believes that you don't have anything that you need to get loose from. So when the time comes for us to come to the altar, if the Spirit has prompted you, you need to get up here. I've had the prayer team already mobilized and thinking about this and praying about this to help you pray through some stuff this morning. And we're going to have a prescription at the end of this sermon, and and I'm going to have it on the wall. And as you come to the altar, we're going to have a prescription of how you should speak over your life and how you should get loose from some stuff. Because you can be saved and bound and and, and not loose and not living in freedom. And, and, And Jesus told us he came to give us an abundant life. But too many of us are are saved, and that's as far as we got. We got inside the door, and we called it a day. But I want to see you get loose. I want to see you free. I want to see you powerful. And so my mandate this morning is a heavy one. I've been praying all morning. I was During praise and worship, I was praying in the balcony because I was trying to set the atmosphere. So I want you to help me pray. Now that you have loosed your, your, your neighbors, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come in and do that very thing. Will you pray that with me, that people will be set free? Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, this morning, that as this word goes forth, I'm praying that you anoint me as the vessel to bring forth your word, but God, that that word will be anointed, that it will be powerful, that it will be sharper than any two-edged sword that will accomplish everything that you send it out to do, and it will not return void. That by the end of this service, people are going to come and be delivered from hang-ups, from confusion, from spirits that have been tormenting them. God, we're praying for addictions to be broken. We're praying this morning that people will no longer care about what others think of them, but only what you think of them and what they think of themselves, so they will come forth and find liberty and freedom. God, I'm praying today that you will trouble the water in the spirit realm so that healing will flow through this place, that nobody that is seeking you, anyone that is willing to get loose, will leave here bound today. Remove every stumbling block of offense. Remove every tormenting spirit that would try to hold people back. And God, most importantly, break every chain of bondage so that your people can walk in freedom today and forever. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, Amen. So this is part 11 of Warning Signs. I'm going to show you the timeline. We're still at 982 B.C. We are still talking about David and Bathsheba. Well, I'm going to pick up exactly where I left off last week. However, this morning we're going to deal with somebody called Nathan, and we're going to show how Nathan confronts David. It's the same time period. As a matter of fact, last week David went up onto the rooftop when he was supposed to go out to war. Do you remember this story? He was shirking his responsibility. He was not where he should be. 
It was a time when kings went to war and King David didn't do what he was supposed to do. He was dodging his responsibilities. And instead of finding his purpose, what we discovered last week was that when you dodge your purpose, you find trouble. Or rather, trouble finds you, right? Because we read the scriptures together that said while David was on the rooftop, what happened? He saw a beautiful woman on the next roof taking a bath. Now, we got children in here. So I'm going to watch my words. But you don't take a bath with a swimming suit on. There was only one way that that woman was out there in the bright noon sun. And that was in her birthday suit. And David saw her. And he found her on Snapchat. And he found out that she was the wife of not only one of his soldiers, but one of his most loyal soldiers, a friend of his named Uriah the Hittite. But the scripture before that told us what his real problem was. Because the Bible says this, the woman was very beautiful, and this is the way it describes her, she was very beautiful to look upon. I don't know how many of you caught that, but when you look at a car driving by, you look at it. When you look at a piece of art, you look upon it. So when the Bible says she was beautiful to look upon, how long was you looking at her, David? I mean, he saw a woman bathing, and he's like, that is a wonderful piece of art, and I'm just going to admire the beauty that the Lord has created. And so it's not always what you see that gets you in trouble. It's that double take. It's what you look upon. It's what you fix your gaze on that gets you in trouble. So last week we left David on the roof. We didn't even get him down off the roof. But we left him there with that sinking feeling. Do you remember the story? And we talked about how Peter was sinking. But it's the next scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the next scripture that I want to begin where it's going to tie last week's message to this week's message. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5. Later... When Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, stop right there, stop right there, stop right there, don't finish it. David snapchatted her and said, hey baby, I couldn't help but notice because you're a UFO, an undressed female object. And won't you come over here and see daddy for a moment? And he got her on the rooftop and well, what happened when she... Well, here's what happened. She discovered that she was pregante. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Somebody say, uh-oh. Uh-huh. So, so David found himself on the roof, and he got to discover that sometimes what happens on the roof... See, see, maybe you, maybe you last week, maybe you discovered that you've already got on the roof, and you're like, Pastor, I don't know what to do now. I got myself up here, and, and, and I stayed longer than I should have stayed, and, and I set the wheels in motion because I did stuff that I shouldn't have done. So here's your warning sign. If, if that's you if, you, if you realize that you've probably found yourself on the rooftop, your warning sign this week is slip, trip, and fall hazard. This is my sermon title for this morning. Warning, slip, trip, and 
fall hazard. Because this is the danger of going on that roof where it is distracting you from your purpose. Because it's not taking you higher. Because the law says that anything that goes up, that's right. So because you, you better know that before you take it too far on that roof, it is a long way down if you fall. So you better watch your step. I came here to give you a few hints this morning before we get into the altar. And my first hint that I want to give you is this. I know it's 2023. I know we're supposed to be emotional creatures and we're supposed to follow our feelings and chase your heart. And That devil is a lie. And it has broken up more people's feelings. Some of you are sitting here this morning. Let me just prophesy for a moment over you because some of you are sitting here this morning and you're wondering why your life is so difficult. Why is it so many ebbs and flows? Why is it up and down? How come I can't stay in relationships? How come I can't stay employed? How come I can't stay on track? I'm going to college and then I'm out of college and I'm going to work and then I'm, I'm out of that job and I'm, I'm going to this state and I'm going to move here and I'm going to move there and you're up and you're down and you're in and you're out and you're all over the place and you feel like life is reckless and careless and you've got, you've got all kinds of emotions flowing everywhere and, and you're wondering why, why why is this always happening to me? I want to give you the first hint this morning. What happens on the roof don't stay on the roof. I'm going, I'm, everything I'm doing is building to the altar. David did something on the roof that caught his attention that got in his soul. He carried that into his bedroom. Now he's got a message, I'm pregnant. Because what happens on the roof don't stay on the roof. And some of you don't realize that you don't just make willy-nilly decisions because I was having a good time Friday night. Because what you did on that roof will follow you. What, what you said in that fit of anger will follow you. That choice you made because you were a little bit tipsy will follow you. What goes on on the roof doesn't stay on the roof. David went onto that roof as a king. He was the commander of the most powerful army on earth. He was the apple of God's eye. But while he was on that roof, he slipped, he tripped, and he fell, and he came down a baby daddy. Went up a king, came down an absentee father. How does somebody make one decision that ruins the course of their life? And we're going to talk about everything that happens from this point going forward. David is going to have a mess. And it's all because of what happened on that roof. Please don't miss this message. Let the, don't let the distractions that go on in the room get you off course because you need this. Because what happened on that roof is going to follow David to his deathbed. What happens on the roof does not stay on the roof. You can get off the roof, hear me, but you cannot escape the consequences of what you made up there. So I mentioned last week that over in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel asked Samuel for a king, right? And why did they want a king? Because they said, oh, everybody else has one. They said, hey, all of our friends have a king. We want a king. And Samuel warned them, did he not? He said, a king is going to tax you until you're broke. It's going to take your daughters for his wives, and it's going to send your sons to die in his battles. And they said, oh yeah, that's what we want. 
That's exactly what we want. But can I tell you that it's easy for us to pass judgment on Israel? But we face that same struggle today. Hear me, don't check out on me yet. We try to fit in with everybody else. We're saved, but we... We come to church, but we want to fit in with everybody else. We want to enjoy Jesus, but also enjoy everything they got. I got Deidre helping me and everybody else is quiet. We want to be able to date like the world dates. We want to go to the same bar. We want to drink the same liquor. We want to smoke the same smoke. We want to do the same stuff, hang out in the same places, rip and roar, and we want to do it like they do it, but love Jesus on Sunday. But what you don't understand is you can get forgiveness, but you can't get absence of the consequences of what you made on that roof. And we seem to forget what happened to Israel every time they tried to fit in with the world. Because they would make friends with the world, and everything would go well until the world started making demands on them. Because make no mistake about it, the Bible says if you are friends with the world, you're an enemy of his. And so they would make friends with the world, and then the world would start making demands, and Israel would cry out for deliverance because they found out that making friends with the world means that the world will eventually steal, kill, and destroy. And their houses would be taken from them. Their children would be kidnapped. They would lose generations because they made friends with the world. And that's some of our problems. Hear me, I'm not fussing at you. I'm telling you, you love Jesus, but you also love other stuff. And the reason you're not living in freedom, and the reason you're not living in liberty, is not because God's not good, or not because the Holy Spirit hasn't done His work. It's because you're trying to be too much like them. And the problem is, the world would begin to make demands of them, and take from them, and eventually make slaves out of them. Until they cry out for God, and God would set them free. But they would have to first cry out. This morning I'm praying, and I've been praying for three weeks, that you will get bold enough today to cry out to be set free from some stuff. There's a song out. Uh, it's, it's been out for about a year, but I hear it all the time, and I want to share some of the lyrics with you. Um, I don't want to love what the world loves. I don't want to chase what the world does. I only want you. I only want you first things first. I seek your will, not my own. Surrender all my wants to you to keep the first thing first. To live your truth, to walk your ways, Set my eyes, Lord, I fix my face on you. All my desires reversed to keep the first thing. Listen, if you want to know how to not slip, trip, and fall, this is it. But my, I've been doing this for 25 years. And I don't know a whole lot of people in this generation that has this kind of level of devotion. What I see is a whole lot of people who love God, 
but they don't only love God. I don't want to love what the world loves. I don't want to chase what the world does. I only want you. I know a lot of people, and some of you are in this room, you love God, but you don't only love God. You don't want your desires reversed. You don't want to run away from the world and run to God. You want to keep fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, but you don't want to live right either. So you're, you constantly battle this thing where you get close to God and you get yanked back. And you do right for a season and you fall back. And you pray, but your prayers don't get to heaven. So mom stays sick. And your children stay lost. And you don't get to walk in that abundant life that Jesus talked about. And you think it's something broken. You think it's the Bible doesn't work. You think, well, this is what happens to everybody. No! When's the last time you reversed your desires? You said, God, I don't want to touch it if you're not in it. I don't want to have it if you didn't give it to me. And I have no desire on this earth except to please you. When's the last time you got serious with God? I know a lot of people that want God, but they don't want to let go of the stuff they have. Think about it like this. Why do you follow God's commands? Why? 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 Is it because you only want God? Or is it because you don't want hell? Because you should come to some level of maturity in your walk with God where you love Him so much that you don't want to hurt Him. You don't want to disappoint Him. You don't want to let Him down. You might run into the kingdom to escape the flames of hell, but that should, that's not enough to keep you. You, you should at some point say, I know hell is not my home, heaven is, and when I walk through them gates, I want to hear, well done, well done, well done. Some of you, God help me, Holy Ghost. Some of you are only here this morning living right because of the consequences of living wrong. Some of you are only here because you want to disappoint somebody. You don't want to let your family down. You don't want to let the pastor down. You don't want to let your neighbor down. And you come and you love Jesus, but you don't only love Jesus. And you have never got to that level where you say, I only want you. Because if you ever do, and at the end of this message, I'm going to invite you to. If you ever do, you will find freedom like you have never known. Don't raise your hand, but for every person that says, I can't quit that, you can quit that. Because the power to quit that is inside of you. The liberation of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You are the temple of His Spirit. And He brings no uncleanliness with Him. What you haven't done is sold out. You keep slipping and tripping and falling. There's a reason behind this. Are you okay? Okay, because it's going to get worse. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Okay, David has made a baby. She's pregnant. David, we learned last week, took care of that, right? How did he take care of that? He, he made it seem like Uriah was the daddy. And before Uriah could deny it and get a DNA test, they were on their way to Mari Povich. And before he could get there, 
David sent Joab to put him on the front lines, pull back, and he was killed. David is a murderer. He started out a sexual deviant. And he ended up a murderer. And now he has blood on his hands. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There are two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of its own food and drank from its own cup and lay on his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Pay attention to this. Write it down. Underline it in your Bible because this is going to be the most important scripture of the day. Verse 4. And a traveler came. You're like, what's the big deal? I'll, I'll show you what the big deal is in a minute, okay? And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man, the traveler, who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, killed it and prepared it for the man who had come. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Do you know how easy it is for you to point your finger at everybody else's faults? Here David, hears this story and he says, that man ought to be put to death. But before he's put to death, he ought to have to buy four you lambs. And Nathan said in verse 7, you the man. Because what David didn't realize was Nathan was setting him up. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Remember that? Now he's taking Saul's place as the murderer. I gave your master's house and a master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given. You know how it hurts. The heart of God. When we betray him, because he said, haven't I given you enough? He said, he's telling David, he said, and if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. You see why it hurts the heart of God for us to sin and betray him? Because he says, you're taking stuff I told you not to take. Because I haven't been good enough to you. I, I haven't given you enough. And if you would have asked me, I would have given you more. But instead, you touch the forbidden stuff. He, he said, verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, and I'm going to come back to this verse. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Can I just put a pen in something right here? Nowhere in the Bible is she ever spoken of as David's wife. From now until the end of Revelation, she is known as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Because you can ordain things here in your life 
that heaven never puts its stamp of approval on. Now, a few weeks ago, we found David at Ziklag. Remember Ziklag? They were out at battle. By the way, they were out at battle with the Amalekites. And when they came back, the Amalekites had burned Ziklag to the ground. Remember that story? And what we learned through that story was sometimes bad stuff happens to you. And you didn't have anything to do with it. They showed back up at home and Ziklag was burnt to the ground. And the enemy had taken all their family and taken them hostage. Sometimes bad stuff happens to you and you had nothing to do with it. But sometimes the problem is not out there. Our problem is an inside job. Let, let, me, let me break it down for you because I have to admit, when I first started in church, a lot of sermons was always about the troubles the world had. We were always preaching on how they did things and, and the wickedness that they were bringing into the, into the earth. They were causing all kinds of problems with their abortions and their bars and, and all the uh, gambling joints. and We were always preaching about outside trouble. But the longer I've lived, I've learned that what they do in Washington really can't ruin my day unless I let it. What my neighbor does down the street does not have a profound effect on my average Monday morning because they aren't my problem. I cause most of my problems. And somewhat, sometimes there's no place to lay my blame except at my own feet. Well, somebody say amen. As a matter of fact, look at your neighbor and say, I know that's right. Because the truth of the matter is this. The person in the mirror has done more harm to me than anything anybody else could ever do. And we don't talk much about it because we're usually too busy keeping score. We say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I don't do what they do. At least I don't go get abortions. At least I'm not drunk every night. At least I'm not, at least I'm not taking other people's husbands and wives. We're keeping score. We're telling others what's wrong with them because we don't want to face the trouble we got inside ourselves because we ignored the warning signs and we quote scriptures like all have sinned but we don't act like we all sinned we act like you all sinned and we keep ourselves out of it so the more often that we'd like to admit we are the man we're the cause of our own calamities matter of fact when the prophet Nathan came and said, you're the man, you never find where David argued with him. David knew that God had sent the voice of heaven to call him to reality. Won't you look at your neighbor and say, is it you or is it me? <laughs> uh -huh. we, already, we already looked at how to come, make a comeback from stuff other people did to us. Other folks mess us up. Other folks get us in a bad position. But what we're going to have to learn how to do is deal with the consequences of what we do to ourselves. Because sometimes you ignore the warning signs and you slip, trip, and fall. Can I tell you about David? Because you got mad at me because I talked about you. David was anointed. David was the apple of God's eye. But David refused to deal with his heart problems. He was anointed. But he was a mess at the same time. You say, that can't be. Oh, it's absolutely true. How many, how many of you know that we all have problems? That none of us are perfect? By the time David was done, 
Bathsheba was pregnant. Uriah had been murdered. The whole kingdom had been lied to. And everything was covered up, he thought. But the Bible says whatever you do in the dark, God will bring and expose it in the light. And God did exactly that. He sends the prophet Nathan to the king's house to rip the cover back off of sin. We love prophecy at the church. We don't like it when it comes to our house. We don't like a true prophecy. We say we like to hear prophecy. No, you like to hear about the end times. Prophecy is when God reads your mail, sometimes publicly. Be careful what you ask for. Because psychologists tell us that the first step in fixing any problem is admitting there is one. And too many of us will not admit that we've got problems. And the Lord's full of mercy. Oh, thank God for mercy. Because He is constantly trying to get us to return to Him. And if we refuse to listen, Nathan might have to show up. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. But a simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. You know what happens this time of the year every year? You find out it don't take much to make you sick. We got people out this morning who called last night and said, we're not going to make it, we're sick. Sickness goes around. Kids go back to school and everybody starts getting runny noses and coughs and, and we go from hugs and handshake season to konnichiwa season. The Lord bless you and keep Make his face shine upon you. <laughs> Konnichiwa. As you come and as you go. Because Jesus and germs are everywhere. So you keep tissues in your pocket. You sneeze into your elbow. And the reason that everybody's getting sick is what? The things that make you sick are very, very small. The things that make you sick are microscopic. And as it is in the natural... So it is in the Spirit. In other words, you can go to church all the time. Listen to worship music all day long. Pray in English in the morning and tongues at night. Do all that and it still won't take much to make you sick. Hello, as a matter of fact, you can give God almost all of you. You can give him just about the entire part of you. And you can say, first things first, most days. But if you don't understand the consequences of stopping short, of giving him everything, because following God with at least 99.5% is still leaving too much room for the enemy. So... When God gets ready to bless you, hear me, the enemy refuses to just sit by and let it happen. He is always going to get involved in your blessing. You go back to the Old Testament and you find out that God had a plan to bless Israel. You know what that plan was? He said, I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey where you will inherit wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant, and you will get houses that you didn't have to build. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal, doesn't it? And they only had to do one thing. One thing. There was only one requirement. They didn't have to lift the sword. They, 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 they didn't have to call in a nuclear strike. Here's what they had to do. Numbers chapter 33. 
Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Verse 51. When you cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, verse 52, I want you to, I want you to help me preach this. You must drive out, what's that little word? Uh-huh. The people living there. You must destroy the carved image, molten images and demolish all their pagan shrines. I hope God wasn't unclear. How many of them? Yeah. How much of their worship? All. Notice how God doesn't leave any room for misunderstanding. He didn't say most. He didn't say the red-headed ones. He didn't say the ones with two thumbs. He, he said all of them. It didn't matter if they were big, small, old, young, fat, thin. It didn't make any difference. Bald, had hair. It didn't make any difference. Destroy, get rid, drive them out. He doesn't even say to kill them. He says get rid of them. That land belongs to you. They're trespassing. Some of you are sitting under the sound of my voice, not just today, but every Sunday. And there's a trespasser. And you bring them to church, and you take them home. And you take them to marriage, and you take them to work. And it hitchhikes with you here, and it goes with you there. And you love Jesus, but you don't only love Jesus. And the reason that you have not evicted this trespasser yet is the same reason that Israel didn't. Because he didn't say, get rid of 99.5%. He said, get rid of how much? Uh And how did Israel do, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Judges chapter 1 tells us. Judges chapter 1 into, verse, uh, into chapter 2. 1 and 28 says, When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves. Stop right there. Stop right there. Did you hear that? When they grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves. How many did God say get rid of? How you got slaves out of people you ain't supposed to have there? Uh, they forced the Canaanites to live as slaves. But they never did drive them completely out of the land. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. So the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Verse 30, the tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahalal. And and the Canaanites continued to live among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves for the people of Zebulun. Verse 31, the tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko and Sidon and Halib. And I'm going I'm to jump down to the end of that. For they failed to drive them out. Verse 33, likewise the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead they moved in among the Canaanites. How many did God say get rid of? Did he say to move in with any of them? Keep going. Verse 34. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down to the plains. How many were they supposed to drive out? And if you don't drive them out, they'll drive you out. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Pay attention to Bochum. And said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt and into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides. Their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Is this sounding familiar? If you do not drive it completely out, 
if you leave 99 and a half to God and one half for the world, you've left too much. Because the temptations of the world will be too much for you. Verse 4, and the angel of the Lord finished speaking with all the Israelites and the people wept loudly. And they called the place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They did almost everything. And God said it's not nearly enough. Just ignoring one little thing was all it took for them to lose property to the enemy. Each tribe had a prophetic promise in Israel. A destiny that God himself selected for them. And all they had to do to live in that purpose and that destiny and that freedom was to kick the enemy out. Such it is with you. Some of you are fighting the wrong battles because you're fighting your spouse over your marriage. And it's not your spouse you need to get rid of. Y'all not going to help me. I'm going to give you five hazards that will cause you to slip, trip, and fall. Are you ready? We're going to write these down. We're going to take these and we're going to put these uh, somewhere. We're going to put them maybe on our uh, mirror in the bathroom. We're going to put them in our car. Maybe put them on a note on your phone. These are the five hazards that will cause you to slip, trip, and fall. And I only want you to write these down or memorize these if you're not perfect. All the perfect people are exempt. The first hazard is when you move from passion to passive and from surrendered to sloppy. As long as David was running for his life, he knew he needed the Lord's help. But when his passion died down, he got sloppy. And it's easy to start ignoring the little things when you get sloppy. And I don't know if you understand this or not, but it's, it's dangerous enough, especially the older you get, it's dangerous enough to slip, trip, and fall while you're on the ground, but it's downright deadly from the roof. So, so there is a, God, you're going to have to help me with this. There is a right person. There is a right time, and there is a right place that can derail your destiny. Your job is to not let all three of those show up at the same place at the same time. Your job is to not let all three of them be on the roof where you are. Because there is a person that you think is sent by God. They are the angel I have been waiting for. No, they are a distraction from the pit of hell. But they spoke such sweet nothings into your ear while you was lonely. And you think that they're the right person, but if they show up at the right time and in the right place you will miss your purpose 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 already told us this what did it say about David in the spring of the year when kings normally go to, out to war do you notice when he slipped tripped and fell it was during a certain season the spring of the year you know what that tells me temptations come in seasons what season do they come in Easy, when you're most vulnerable to them. When you are sloppy. When you have not been taking care of yourself spiritually. That's when temptation is going to come knocking. In those seasons where you don't pray like you used to. In those seasons where you start missing too much church. It's in those seasons where you neglect your ministry duties. 
You're getting sloppy. You have put off your purpose. And now the enemy knows it's time. It's the right season. Shoo, help me, Jesus. This is the most important thing I'm going to tell you all morning because the rest of the sermon is about this. Number two, when you let the traveler in. What did Nathan say happened in that little story? He said the traveler came, right? The traveler came and knocked on the door and he let the traveler in. And immediately, immediately he had to feed the traveler. Hear me? The traveler always makes demands of you. The traveler has to be fed. The traveler comes hungry. And once you let the traveler inside, it demands to be fed. And it waits for you to have a moment, a season of discouragement or sickness or you're distracted or you're getting sloppy. And he knows exactly where to put a stumbling block under your feet to trip you up. Being tempted is inevitable, but catering to the traveler is a choice. I'm not going to say anything more important than what I'm about to say all morning long. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says this, temptation comes from our own desires. Hear me. You don't have a choice in being tempted. You can't help being tempted. I thought I might get at least one amen. You can't help being tempted. Jesus said, as long as you're breathing air, you're going to be tempted. He said, as long as you're here on this earth, you will, temptation will surely come. You can't help being tempted. But, look what else James says. They entice us and drag us away. You can't tell me you don't feel yourself being dragged away. So you, you can't help being tempted, but you know. You know when you are being drug away. Now, here in verse 15 is where things come down to you because you have to make a choice to act on temptation. Look what it says. Temptation comes from our own desires. That means it's already inside of you. You've heard me say this before. I'll just pick on him again. The devil ain't tempting me with Scott. I love Scott. They've been good to me. But he ain't got nothing for me. Apparently I ain't got nothing for him either. That's not temptation for me. In no way, shape, or form. Not today, not Monday, not Tuesday, not Fourth of July. It ain't happening. And because I have no desire. So why would the devil send temptation where there is no desire? He won't. He knows what season. He knows when you're sloppy. So he sends the right temptation at the right time. And there's a, he knows because it plugs into a desire that's inside of you. Because why? Once those two happen, it starts dragging you away. I can walk into a room full of heroin addicts, and I will not walk out a heroin addict because I have no desire. But some of you don't need to be in that room. Come on. Some of you don't need to be in that room. And just because Scott ain't got nothing for me and I ain't got nothing for Scott don't mean some, some, don't mean that there may not be some of y'all that's got the wrong desires and you don't need to put yourself in a sloppy season, my God in heaven, because you have to know your own limitations. Because when a desire and temptation plug in together, look what happens in verse 15. These desires conceive, and they have a baby, and the baby's called sin. 
Because temptation and your desires get together and cause you to act sinfully. And when sin is allowed to grow, it has a baby. And that baby is called death. So this is where you have a choice because you can't choose to be tempted. But if you act on that temptation because of your desires, they make this baby called sin. Are you with me? I know I've preached a long time, but it's going to get longer. But I need you to, I need you to hold on to these truths because this is going to set somebody free. Once you have sinned, the devil didn't make you do it. What did James say? He said the desire was in you. He tempted you. You made a choice. And now you have sinned. That's what happened to David. He went up on the roof. He didn't go there to sin. Sin found him because he was dodging his purpose. And now he has sinned. But here's what happens with sin. You give demonic powers inroads to your soul. But I love Jesus. But your soul doesn't. Your spirit loves Jesus, but your mind, your will, and your emotions. Paul says you constantly have to be retraining your mind to think God's thoughts. And what you do when you sin is you give demonic forces strongholds to set up in your soul. Because once you have conceived it, let me give you a dirty little secret that churches and preachers lie about all the time. Sin's fun. For a season. But while you in that season, woo, ain't nothing like it. It's a trip. It's a ride. It's an adrenaline rush. Sin is fun for a season. Churches want to act like, ain't nothing out there but misery. Yeah, eventually. But when you in it, the crash and burn, the slip, the trip, the fall, yeah, that's miserable. But when you're on that roof, you're like, hey, baby, what you got in that bathtub over there? <laughs> Why do you think once you have conceived sin, you want to do it over and over and again and again? And don't raise your hands, but some of you know what it's like to have sin in your life, and you know it's making your life miserable, and you say things like, I can't let go of it. Why do you think you can't let go of it? Because you have given inroads to demonic forces. And some of you have gotten better at making excuses than you have at making good choices. The more you allow the traveler to live in your house, the more control he takes and the less control you have. The more you allow the traveler to live in your house, the more control he takes and the less control you have. And the longer you allow sin to operate in your life. I know you love Jesus. I know you're here on Sunday, but hear me. You can love Jesus and still sin. You can preach the gospel and still sin. The longer you allow sin to operate in your life and give it permission to reign over you, that sin, just like a baby, doesn't stay small forever. It grows and grows until it's fully mature, and then the fully mature version is death. The third hazard is you try to control what you're supposed to eliminate. Why is the churches in such a mess today? Why is nobody living right? Why is there... Well... 
Did you see what Israel tried to do to the Canaanites? I pointed out to you three different times. What did it say? They made slaves out of them. What they were supposed to eliminate, they tried to use. Some of you think that you can use your enemy Friday night, Saturday night. That's not hurting nobody. Come into God's house on Sunday and the, and the Spirit done washed me clean. But here's what God knows that you need to know. If you leave the enemy in your neighborhood, you will eventually compromise to their desires and fall victim to their plans. And when, instead, when Jesus tells you to follow him, he doesn't just say, come as you are and I'll, I'll pet you down and love you and show you. What does he say? He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up. Paul says it like this. I had to crucify my flesh. See, some of you pacify the flesh. You don't crucify the flesh. We, we, we want to control the flesh. We want to go out and do our thing Friday night and Saturday night. And Sunday, we want to come in and pray that God doesn't hurt us because of our bad choices. Because you are trying to control the flesh. Well, anybody can control it for two hours on Sunday morning. When you're in the room here with a bunch of anointing flowing, but you have to learn to control the flesh. Eliminate, crucify the flesh. Because if you're trying to control the devil that you invited in, you can't control him. You have to cast him out. Number four, when you refuse to completely, uh, when you refuse to obey completely, the enemy will leave you in tears. Did you notice what happened when the angel found them at Bochum? And Bochum means place of weeping. The Bible says they wept bitterly. Because the enemy will always leave you in tears. When you leave the enemy close by, when you look at him face to face every day, you're always going to end up in tears. And you need to know that you can't entertain the enemy. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. You cannot leave the enemy in your house, in your vicinity, in your neighborhood, and it not cause you pain. Some of you, don't raise your hands, but how many relationships has left you in tears? How many nights out and your car in the guardrail has left? How many lost jobs has left you in tears? How many broken relationships has left you in tears? How many times has the devil left you in tears? And you keep blaming everybody else. You blame the boss. You blame your ex. You blame them. You blame this. But the Bible says you didn't evict the traveler. And if you leave the enemy close by, he will leave you in tears. And God doesn't want you. He said, if you will trade me your sorrow, I will give you joy. I will give you the satisfaction of your soul. But you have to want me. The reason the enemy leaves you in tears is because your heart's attached to it. Oh. Your heart broke by stuff you're not supposed to love. If you fully... First things first, I seek your will, not my own. Surrender all my thoughts to you. If you really did that, you would never be heartbroken because he has no evil in him. He is perfect and loves you perfectly. So if all you loved was God, if, all you, if your love was hidden in him, you would never be heartbroken. But the reason the enemy can get you to cry so easy is because he has your heart. 
Number five, spiritual enemies you refuse to finish will finish you. Spiritual enemies you refuse to finish will finish you. Samuel comes to King Saul when Saul was still alive. I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to give you a, a quick history lesson. First Samuel chapter 15, Samuel comes to King Saul and says, here's what God said. You go down and kill the Amalekites. Now, I don't have time to explain all this, and you're not going to like the way this story starts. Because he says, I want you to kill the Amalekites. Kill them all. The old, the young, the men, the women, the animals. I mean, God didn't even want bedbugs left. He said, I want you to kill everybody. Saul went and killed almost everybody. When Samuel came and confronted him, he said, did you do what God said? He said, of course I did what God said. I slayed all the Amalekites. Samuel said, what is the bleeding of this sheep out here? Because, oh, oh, well, I kept some sheep. But see here, here's the thing. Here's the sheep. Here's the thing. I kept some of the Amalekite sheep. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. See, listen, listen, preacher. I'm going to bring it to church. Go read your Bible. That's what it said. Listen, preacher, it's all right. It's all right. I know I know. God said not to date them. I mean, I'm sorry. I just got straight off. I know, I know God said don't touch them. I know God said kill them all. But see, I'm going to take them down to the temple and sacrifice them. I'm going to take them to church. It's all right. I mean, he's fine. I mean, she's got them baby blues and the bow, the bow, the bow, bow. I'm going to bring her to church. Come on, preacher. Surely you can understand that. I'm going to bring her to church. And Samuel drops a line that you have heard over and over again in church. Obedience is better than sacrifice. First things first. Because King Saul decided to do almost everything. There was a reaction in heaven because of disobedience on the earth. And God said, I have removed Saul because heaven reacted when earth disobeyed. God, help me. And he said, I have taken my anointing off of him. I've taken my blessing off of him. I, he will no longer have the promise I made over his life because he decided to be disobedient to me. Let me go, let me go a little bit farther. When David came back to Ziklag, who burned Ziklag? The Amalekites, the same people Saul was ordered to kill. David's whole life turned, turned at Ziklag. The Amalekites shouldn't have even existed. They should not have been David's enemy because Saul was so, because what one generation refuses to take care of gets passed to the next generation. So if you ignore what you're supposed to do in your generation, please expect that same enemy to show up in the next generation and them to have to deal with it. But not only that, before David got to Ziklag, let me tell you what happens to Saul. Saul is on a battlefield with the Philistines. And he gets mortally wounded. And while he is bleeding out, and it's touch and go, a young man comes along and kills King Saul and takes his crown. He runs to David thinking David's going to be pleased because Saul's been trying to kill David. 
He says, hey, Saul was out there on the battlefield, and I killed him. I took a spear and ran it in him, and here's his crown. David, aren't you proud of me? And David looked at him and said, where are you from? He said, I'm an Amalekite. Because whatever enemy you refuse to kill will eventually kill you. Saul should have took care of the Amalekites and there would not have been one there to take his crown. And some of you have lost your... Because you knew you were supposed to get rid of that traveler. You knew it was not supposed to be part of your life at this stage of your life. And here we are still dealing with the same... Can I go a little bit deeper? I know I've preached an hour, but can I keep? Can I, can I, okay, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. This is the scripture I said I was coming back to. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. This is Nathan speaking to David. The sword will never depart from your house. Why? Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What happened on that roof changed David's life forever. Pastor, it was one mistake. I asked God to forgive me. What happens on the roof, don't stay on the roof. Please understand, in the coming weeks, as we look at David's story, listen to what he says. Your enemy will come from inside your own house. We're going to see how that happens. Two of David's sons try to steal the kingdom from him. Verse 12. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel. You can't hide from God. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. That's good, right? That's good. God's not going to kill you over your sin. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. God has a big heart. God loves to forgive. You know what God loves more than forgiving? Not having to forgive. For you to walk right, uprightly, circumspectly before your God. And look at verse 14. David, you won't die, however. Oh, no, oh boy. You remember when your mama or the teachers would say, I'm not going to kick you out of school, however. You felt pretty good, and then that however just took all the air out of your lungs. Anybody remember that? However, because this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. David, God heard you. He forgave you. But here's your problem. You opened up the door to the traveler. And now that the traveler is in your house, he has access to your children. He's got ammunition to use against your mind and against your heart and against your emotions. God loves you and he forgave you, but you let, you let the door open. Did you see what Nathan said? You have given occasion. You open the door to the traveler. And some of you know what this is like. Because you keep coming to God and asking for forgiveness. You keep asking God to forgive you. But you keep doing what you said you were sorry for. Come on, come on up here, praise team. If you could, just come up and start playing some, some music for me because I'm, I'm going to land this thing. I'm not done, but I'm going to quit. Because I really need everybody's attention for this. Some of you know what it's like. Because you keep coming to the altar and asking God for forgiveness. But then you keep doing the thing you're asking for forgiveness for. You say you're sorry, but you don't quit. Until eventually, that baby that sin produces is death. And it may not be physical death, but it's the death of your relationship with God. It's your death with 
fellowship with God's people. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to point you out. But everybody in this room knows somebody who used to be totally committed to God. And today they don't even think about coming to church. It doesn't mean they don't love Jesus. It doesn't matter that they, or it doesn't mean that they uh, are are bound to, to miss heaven. I mean, that could be part of it, sure, but they're missing all the blessings that God's supposed to have for their life because they let the traveler in. And the traveler makes demands. The traveler needs to be fed. And you keep asking for forgiveness and you keep going back and doing the thing that you said you wouldn't do anymore. Until eventually you just get tired of doing it. And you stop asking. My last point is this. The reason it happens is because forgiveness is exhausting with the traveler still in the house. Seeking forgiveness is exhausting. Can you play for me, sis? Seeking forgiveness is exhausting with the traveler still in the house. You come up and you say, please forgive me. But you turn around and do it again. It's exhausting. It makes your soul weary. Until eventually you just stop. You just stop coming forward. You, you stop asking God. What did Nathan tell David? He said, the trouble's going to come from inside your own house. Some of you got trouble inside your house. You're sitting here this morning, and while I've been preaching this message, you realize that your trouble is not out there. It's inside your own house. And I've diagnosed your problem. You opened the door to the traveler. And even though you want to be free, You've kept the traveler around so long, you don't even know how, you don't even know what freedom feels like. You don't even know if it still exists. Because the traveler has come in and had access to your mind, to your will, and to your emotions for so long. It's got access to your house. It's got access to your relationships. It's got access to your children. You don't even know what freedom looks like. You still love Jesus, but you've got lust. David's problem you love Jesus but you live in a constant state of fear you're afraid your kids won't call you're afraid that somebody's going to leave you you're afraid you're going to lose the house you're afraid you're going to lose the job it's just fear and fear and fear that's what the see the, the, I didn't get to preach this the traveler never travels alone he brings baggage and in that baggage is things like lust and fear and bitterness and anger and addiction. Some of you have said, God, please forgive me, but you've not changed anything. You still do exactly the same stuff you always did. So I'm going to give you a prescription. This is what we're going to pray before you come up to the altar this morning, okay? This is, this is how I want you to pray. There's four things, and I want them all up on the screen at the same time. This is your plan for staying spiritually immune. Because the things that make you sick are small. They're microscopic. So you have to take precaution. Number one, wash away your excuses. When God says get rid of it, get rid of it. Hear me under the sound of my voice as I 
prophesy over you. Some of you have people in your life you need, you have been making excuses for them and you need to give them an eviction notice. They are the traveler. They are sucking the spiritual life out of you. I don't know how I'll live without them. You'll live with Jesus. That's how you'll live. And He will give you an abundance. Number two, you need to isolate yourself. When you get sick, you're not supposed to go around other people. You need to isolate from the lies of the enemy. You know what the lies of the enemy is? The traveler comes in and says stuff like this. Oh, that'll make you happy. You deserve this. The traveler comes in and lies and says, it's not hurting anybody but you. Number three, you got to choose not to touch it again. Don't go back to what made you sick the first place. When you come up to this altar this morning, you say, I will not go back. I'm going to drive them all out. And number four, you got to apply the antidote. You've had time to write them down. I'm going to give you the antidote. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. This is the antidote. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. What that says to you this morning is Jesus came on a mission. And it wasn't just to save you. Did you see what it says? He came to destroy, to disarm, and dethrone the, Lu the Lucifer that is claimed to be king. He wants to be king in your life. Will you make him first? Will you give your whole heart to him? Will you turn from the thing that has been holding you and binding you? And will you be free today? Here's what Jesus said when he was on the cross. Three words that I'm going to speak over you. It is he came to disarm the works of the enemy that was his mission and I need you to know his victory is complete he completed his victory so that you can have complete victory he finished his work so you can walk in his finished work but you have to finish your business too many of you are walking in partial victory and he wants you to finish the work this morning. How many's got the traveler that they need to get rid of? I'm not going to prolong this thing. You should have some of you should have already been up here. I can't live with, I can't live like this anymore. I've got I've got to put you first. Jesus, I only want you. I only want you. I, if, if, if this is you in this room, and prayer team, just come on up. Don't wait. Don't wait. Just come on, prayer team, because I, I need you to be mobilized, because th these people are going to be serious when they get here. And, I, and I, listen, listen, you need deliverance. You come up here, you need deliverance. Whether it's a lust, whether it's an addiction, whether it's anger, wh whatever it is, you need deliverance. I, fear, you holding on to bitterness because of what mama did you need deliverance these are the put those four back up for me if you would I just want to I just want to uh, uh, make clear that this is what we got to do every one of you you come up here get rid of the excuses get rid of the excuses right now God I want you more than I want anything else in my life I, your purpose for my life is what I want I want you to isolate from the lies he's told you a bunch of lies you need right now this morning make up your mind this is not going to go any farther than this I will not touch it again. I'm not going back to this. I only want you. I only want you. And then you got to apply that antidote. Jesus finished the work. It is finished. Every person that comes to this altar and is praying this morning, that's what you need to be saying over your life. It is finished. It is finished. 
it is finished. He said it's finished. Why won't you agree with him? It is finished. My, my lust is finished. My addiction is finished. My hatred my, is finished. I, I've applied the antidote. Jesus won this so I don't have to anymore. I don't have to carry this. I don't have to walk in this. I'm free. I am free. It is finished. In the name of Jesus. How long are you going to keep it around? God said it's finished. Speak deliverance over their life, prayer team.